If you could turn to Psalm 25, that's where we're going to be today. I will express my disappointment in you all. I goofed last week. I told you that uh, in the first part of Psalm 19, when it talks about the book of the world, general revelation, it refers to God simply as God, L, and that he, used, he switches in the latter part of the psalm, and I never got to that. And no one said, hey, wait a minute. Of course, he refers to him as Yahweh, the covenant name that is received by Moses at the burning bush. So uh, it shifts from uh, sort of the general revelation, the idea of God, to the God of the Bible, Yahweh. So that was that. But now we're on to chapter, uh, Psalm 25. This again is a psalm of David. Hear the word of our God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For Your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him He will instruct in the way He should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, is for those, uh, sorry, and He makes known to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and an uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, 
out of all his troubles. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let us pray. Father, in Christ there is indeed fullness of grace and truth. And we need that grace and truth this morning. We ask that you would give us Christ, whom you sent, that we might have this grace and truth from the Scriptures. Do this so that we can see your glory, that we might love and delight in you all the more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want some of you, those of you who are older, to think back for a moment. To remember what it was like to be perhaps a teenager and to think about what maturity meant. When you thought of maturity, if you were like me, you perhaps thought of privilege. I get to learn how to drive. I get to drive a car. And then when I'm 18, some of you might thought, I get to vote. Not that there's any promise there'll be anyone worth voting for, but you get to vote anyway, right? So privilege upon privilege. You get to leave the house. I mean, not like to go to your friend's house, but you get to get your own place. You can do whatever you want with the walls instead of having mom complain about what you want to do with the walls. Okay? You can paint it what color you want and not hear your father go, I don't want to paint it again. We think of... We think of maturity in terms of privilege. And then we get older. And we begin to see that maturity doesn't have to do with just privilege, but it also has to do with responsibility. Because while you can paint those walls any any old color you want to paint them, you have to pay somebody so that you can have those walls. And mom and dad aren't going to do it for you anymore. And so maturity means not just enjoying privileges, but also taking up responsibilities. In order to do that, we see that we must become people of character. And so where we are in life shapes how we view this idea of maturity. It's the same thing in Christianity. When we're a young believer, we see maturity one way, and when we're a mature believer, we tend to see it in another way. We move to, from privileges to character and responsibility. How do we get there? That's a lot of what this psalm is about, I believe. I mentioned last week, Zach Erswin. And uh, this idea that he had in his book, The Imperfect Pastor, that he calls the, the gospel waltz. And uh, that's how I'm seeing a lot of this playing out. I see that uh, really kind of fitting well together with this psalm. And so I'm going to express this psalm in light of or using the paradigm of the gospel waltz, which is how we gain maturity how we grow in grace and truth. The big idea is that Christ instructs those who trust Him with their afflictions. Okay? Let's 
say a couple of words about this psalm before we really kind of, well, we're not even going to dig in. This psalm is long enough that we, we would spend far too much time if we were going verse by verse, and so we're going to look at it thematically. But this, ver- this psalm is what's called an acrostic. This is a, uh, if Rena was here, uh, this is a literary professor's dream, okay? Because an acrostic is one of those, so- one of those psalms or poems where, um, in this case, Every ver, every sentence in a, each particular verse starts with the same letter and it goes through the Hebrew alphabet. Now, there are a couple of slight deviations here, but if you want to see a larger acrostic, go to Psalm 119. And if you have a good Bible, it'll, little note for you. Uh, each stanza starts with all the letters of the, you know, the, the letter of the alphabet. You know, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. This is the Hebrew alphabet we say. Okay, blame Richard Pratt that I still have that song in my head. Okay. And so this is a, a, a shorter sort of acrostic poem. And so it's not developed thematically. Okay. It, in some ways it seems like it keeps going in circles and repeating some familiar territory. And that way it's very similar to uh, the Epistle of James. If you read James, everything that's in that letter is found in the first chapter and it keeps cycling back over the material. And so all of these ideas that we see in this psalm are, keep getting recycled back for us. Okay, But there's a very significant difference in this psalm. Oftentimes, when there's troubles, what we see is, is David starts with the troubles and he, the distress of his soul, and we see him expressing trust and confidence in God at the end of the song. That in a sense, he has to get there. He's struggling, so to speak, as many immature people do, with the reality of affliction. And the reality of his sin. And, but it's eventually God brings him to this place where he's able to trust God. But this song begins with trust. And so I think it's an expression of a mature David whose faith is stable because he starts off with this idea, in you I trust. It is to you I have lifted up my soul. Calvin notes, that our confidence in God should correspond to his great goodness towards us. And the older David had experienced much of the goodness of God. And so he was better equipped to trust God at the beginning of his afflictions instead of having to kind of get there eventually. And that's really an aspect, I said, of maturity. We go through, we still go through afflictions, but the more mature we are, the quicker we get to that place of trusting Him in our afflictions. And so, our three points really sort of correspond to what the three movements of that gospel waltz. And so, uh, dance with me, or more importantly, dance with Jesus. Okay? The first cry of the heart is, my life is a mess. And we see this repeatedly throughout this psalm. David's life was, in a sense, a disaster. And he pours out this precisely because he trusts God to work in him and to work for him. He's not, he's not painting a happy face on his life. He's not pretending that everything is good when in reality it kind of stinks. 
He's honest with God about what's going on. And if you sat down and talked with him, he would be honest with you too about what's going on. There's a transparency in David that I think we all long to experience, but we all sort of shy away from. Because, you know, we don't like that guy who dumps on you, you know. Uh, Ed Eubanks calls me the king of the overshare. So I must be one of those guys who, who dumps on people. I'm trying to be honest about where I am in life. That can be scary at times. So David's honest about this. So maybe you wouldn't have David as your friend. I don't know. But I think I'd like to have him as my friend. He's honest. He says he's lonely and afflicted. He feels abandoned and alone in the midst of his affliction, sort of like Job who's kind of sitting on the ash heap and all he's got is those three friends who just say to him, just admit you're wrong, Job. How to feel lonely like that, huh? That's sort of where David is. He feels isolated, alienated from everybody else because his troubles are enlarged. They're big troubles, at least to David. And when you're the king of Israel, you have to have big troubles, I think, for them to, ve- to appear as big troubles. What are his big troubles? There's two main things that are going on. And he does use afflictions, plural, so there's a lot going on in David's life. It's not just one thing. And a lot of times there's a lot of little things that go on in our lives, not just one thing. And the first is that David has enemies. He has lots of enemies. He has violent enemies if we, we take verses 3 and 19 seriously. He's been through this before. He ran away for, from Saul for years and Saul was trying to kill him. This could refer to the events that are taking place when Absalom, his son, rose up in rebellion against him and David was forced from the city with a few faithful people. And there were some people left behind that were unfaithful to him. They were his own servants. And they betrayed him. They turned their back on him and started to follow his son, Absalom. So but David... Even if we don't know the historical context of this, uh, David feels the threat, the real present danger of his enemies. There are people who are lining up to take their shot at him, which is one of the problems when we have power. The bottom line in this is that there were people who were sinning against David. And that's the thing we've got to catch on, because... I don't think there's anyone that you know that's plotting to put a bomb in your car, right? There's, there's no one who's, you know, plotting to uh, chase you down in the middle of the night with their car and run you over, for instance. There's no one who's plotting to take your life. But there are people who sin against you, aren't there? There's people at work who will undermine you and undercut you, who will lie about what you do, trying to get ahead of you and to keep you back. There's enemies that we have. They just may not seek our lives, but they may seek to destroy us in other ways. Okay? There are people in your life who want to rejoice over you. Think about those people for a minute 
who want to rejoice when life is bad for you. That's what David was experiencing. There are those who want you put to shame, who want your holding to the gospel promises to disappoint you. Think of those people. And know that that is what David experienced. Think of this. Jesus understands. Because Jesus has experienced all of these things. He experienced those who rejoiced over him, who were rejoicing in the fact that he was crucified unjustly upon the cross. They mocked him and they were delighted because they thought that God had disappointed him. He was put to shame and they rejoiced over this. They sinned against Jesus. So Jesus understands this. He's walked this road that he might know. So, first off, David has enemies, lots of deadly enemies. Secondly, David has sins. Sins in his past, these indiscretions of youth, as well as transgressions in the present. We too, like David, if we're honest, struggle with regrets. Many of us have sins of our youth, indiscretions of our youth, and we wish we hadn't have done those things because now that we're older, we see how they've made life more difficult for us. Okay? But it's not just his past that he's struggling with. It's also his present. He knows that he has transgressions, that, the, that he has acts of rebellion against God, that there are times when he leaves the path that has been marked out for him by God's Word. And I kind of wonder, did David ever wonder if those two afflictions and his others were connected with one another? That if the reason he had so many enemies was because he had so many sins. Sometimes they're connected. And as we see in the life of Job, sometimes they're not. So we must be careful. But David did not, was not running away from these things. He was confessing these areas of weakness, these problems in his life. It's something similar to what we see with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. How many of you are content with weaknesses? I don't see any hands. Because we're not. With insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity, so all kinds of afflictions he mentions there. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And brothers and sisters, we live in a generation, in a culture that does not like weakness. As I said, we don't like Mr. Overshare. Okay? We don't want to hear about other people's problems. We, we want them to do what we do and pretend that those problems don't exist. We want them to put on the happy face and, the, and straighten their back and be strong. And We don't appreciate weakness. We tend to despise weakness. 
as a culture. But the Scriptures tell us to embrace and, in a sense, celebrate weakness. And so the first cry of our heart is really, my life is a mess. I'm sinned against, and I sin, and there's nothing I can do about either of them. I'm in a mess. It is a cry of humility, which is why our culture tends not to like it. We like pride, self-esteem, not humility. It is the cry that life is messy, that life is dangerous, that I am messy, and I don't just mean the quality of my room when I'm a child or a single adult, um, and that I'm dangerous. That's what this first part of the gospel waltz is, is embracing the reality that I am a sinner and I'm sin against, sinned against, and I can't fix it. So, let's go to the second cry, which reflects the second movement in the gospel waltz. I need you to rescue me. In David's time, just like ours, there were many options for relief. Remember, that was the constant temptation of Israel, was to go to the gods of the nations. Didn't have to go that far. It could have been go to alcohol, go to sex. There are a number of places. Try to, try to see if my wealth, the, the accumulation of wealth will protect me. The same things that we struggle with today. We can run from our affliction in so many ways. Too much TV, hiding in our electronics, going shopping, food. I love food. It's going to kill me one day. Um, David, on the other hand, looked to his covenant God, Yahweh. And as he does so, he recounts so many aspects, aspects of God's character. That, that the God he trusts in is trustworthy. Worthy of his trust. Worthy of his confidence. Because this is a God of steadfast love. This is a God who he says is good and upright. This is a God who is marked by faithfulness. This is the God David can trust in. This is the God that we can trust in. And David, in fact, trusts him. You are, he says, the God of my salvation. The one who will deliver me, not just from my sins, but also my enemies. Not just my enemies, but also my sins. As we think about his enemies, rather than seeking vengeance he is waiting for God to deliver him. That's what this is about. He's waiting for God to deliver him from his enemies instead of, instead of bringing the sword and getting his own deliverance from his enemies. Now, think about that for a moment. Think about who David was. The slayer of the giant Goliath. The king of Israel. 
himself a mighty warrior who's surrounded by his mighty men. But he's looking to God. He's not avoiding the means that God might use, but his confidence ultimately is in God and not in himself and not in the bodyguards that he has, the mighty warriors at his disposal to deliver him from his enemies. Because he knows who God is. This is why I think Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, it's not in my job description as a follower of Jesus to get revenge on the people who harm me. It's not. I want it to be because I'm part Sicilian. And I believe in vendettas. Okay? But it's not. I'm also supposedly Corsican and related to, to Napoleon Bonaparte. So, you know, I get it bad always. But in Christ, there's a new man, a new creation. Okay? We see this as well in the example of Jesus. In First uh, Peter chapter 2, When Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And so Jesus is not asking you to do anything that He hasn't already done. He's walked that road for you and will one day bring deliverance for you. In fact, we see the great reversal in the first parts of this psalm when when Yahweh will make them ashamed. They wanted David to be ashamed, but they're the ones who are going to end up ashamed or disappointed. Their hopes of his shame will come to nothing. An example of Talonic justice. And David continues to trust this God to guard his soul and to deliver him. When I read things like that, I'm reminded of uh, Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. Because he's been asked to recant all of his writings. He's been asked to recant his accusations against the establishment for corrupting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's reminded of the words of Psalm 119, which his confessor Stoutspitz often said to him, I am yours. Save me. And so he knew that it was up to God to deliver him from these people who sought to put him to death if he did not recant. And so must we. Remember, I am yours. Save me. I'm yours because Christ shed His blood for me. Save me. Deliver me. But David's not just trusting for himself. If we go to the very end of the psalm, we see this idea, redeem Israel. Not just redeem me, but redeem Israel out of all his troubles. And so David's concern was not just with himself. David's concern was also with the people of God. 
And so our concern, I believe, should also be not just with ourselves and our own relationship with Jesus Christ, but also with the church, the local congregation, as well as the church worldwide. That we are to be concerned not only with our personal enemies, but also the enemies of the church around the world and asking God to deliver His people whom He loves from them to display His faithfulness, to display His goodness, to display His uprightness. That should be our concern. Please include the church, capital C. But secondarily, in number, not in significance, He also trusts God to pardon my guilt for it is great. Not Pardon my guilt because it's kind of tiny. You know, it won't bother you too much because it's only a couple of tiny little sins that you got to deal with. It, it won't bother you a whole lot, God, to forgive these kind of little sins I've got here. You know, uh, the fib I told and you know, the, the time I snuck out after curfew, that kind of stuff. No, he says, my sin is great. I can't bear it. I've done so many things. And so many really bad things. Pardon my guilt. Take it away. Remove it from me. He repeats in another place, turn and be gracious to me. I need you to stop looking away from me and to start look toward me. That Abrahamic blessing. That Abrahamic, ironic blessing. Okay. This is similar to what we find in Psalm 130. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared or reverenced. In the midst of this, we see this very interesting uh, use of parallelism within the psalm. That's one of those things that Rena would love, I think. Um, He starts off, remember. Then he says, remember not. And then he says, remember. And the first part of it is, remember your mercy and steadfast love. They're from of old. They were revealed to us by Moses. You have displayed them to your people in pardoning their sins. That same steadfast love, remember that, not just intellectually, but bring it. That's what he's saying. Bring that steadfast love. Bring that mercy. I need that. I'm in desperate need of that. Remember not, in other words, don't act upon the sins of my youth, those indiscretions of my past. Put them away from your memory. May you you not interact with me on the basis of those things. Instead, remember me according to your steadfast love and mercy. So he wants God to remember him. And He does indeed remember us due to mercy and steadfast love in Christ. James Montgomery Boyce tells this story of an elderly man who was bedridden. And I've, never, I've only been bedridden for a couple days because I had the flu or something like that. But this man was bedridden for an extended period of time and what he found is that he began to reminisce and get caught up in the sins of his youth. They came back, so to speak, to haunt them, to haunt him. 
And one day the pastor came to visit and they were talking and finally the man said to him, What a fool am I that I remember the sins that Christ has forgotten. That's what we can do sometimes. We torture ourselves with sins that have already been paid for. They've already been confessed. They've already been forgiven. We don't need to bring them up anymore. We don't need to live as though they still matter in our relationship with God. That is why I believe in Romans 5 it says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That our continuing sin does not destroy that peace but it is purchased with the blood of Jesus. And we need not fear that God will say, oh, you've crossed the line today, Steve. No more for you. But He's merciful. Grace comes to us. It comes to the humble in the person of Christ. And faith receives Christ and His fullness. I love these words of John Newton. And though my transgressions and my enemies... makes you think he was reading this psalm, doesn't it? My transgressions and my enemies are very many and very prevalent. The Lord in whom I trust is more and mightier than all that is against me. It's when we feel the burden of them that we see what our heart really believes. Whether we think that they're greater or He is greater. And I'll tell you, it's Him. We believe lies when we think it's them that are greater. So, the second cry reminds us that Christianity is not a self-help plan. It's not moralism. It's not even a Jesus-assisted help plan. You know, some of me and some of Jesus. It's, it's all of Christ. It's all of grace. It is received only by faith. And so, the second movement is to receive the fullness of Christ. This is a cry of desperation and faith that rests on the sufficiency of Jesus to save us. Which brings us to the third movement, the third cry. Teach me your ways. Okay? And it's interesting, in my own conversion, this is what I, this is what I did. I, didn't, I hadn't read Psalm 25 as far as I know, but by the grace of God, He worked in me by the power of the Spirit that, that this is what was going on in my heart. I didn't use these exact words, but I used all of, all of these things came out of my mouth. So, anyway. David is not content simply to be delivered. He knows that having left the path, he needs to find the path again. I'm reminded of the hobbit. Gandalf warns them. The dwarves and the hobbit in tow, so to speak, the one they don't want along for the ride, the one they're not sure they can trust to do the job when they get to uh, you know, the, the mountain. Bilbo, unimpressive Bilbo. Okay? 
They have decided that they want to leave the path that goes through the Mirkwood Forest. They think for some reason it's a, it's a great idea, even though Gandalf has said repeatedly, don't leave that path. Because he knows that once they leave it, they'll never get back to it. They'll get lost in the forest. And so what happens? They're attacked by giant spiders. Somehow surviving the giant spiders, they are then captured by elves. Except for Bilbo. And it's Bilbo, the unassuming Bilbo, who comes and rescues them so they can get back to the path they belong on to bring them to their destination. Unassuming, unimpressive, seemingly unimportant Bilbo Baggins is the one. From the world's perspective, Jesus is a lot like Bilbo Baggins. He's very unimpressive. He never led a major country. He didn't have an empire. He wasn't a conquering hero like uh, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Attila the Hun. He's rather unimpressive because what he did was die on a cross, hung between two thieves. Doesn't look good on the resume for greatness, does it? And it's the unassuming Jesus that rescues us but also brings us, not just rescues us from the prison of the elves, so to speak, but brings us back to the path of God. So David expresses this in so many ways. Make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me and teach me. He's desperate to be instructed. What does God, well, rather, who does God instruct And it's fascinating because he says he instructs sinners in the way. Sinners. Not the people who've gotten their act together. Not the people who've cleaned themselves up. It's sinners. Because they're humble. That we see in the next verse. He does this precisely because he's good and upright and precisely because they need instruction in his way. He does this. He does not reject us in Christ, but instructs us because we're ignorant. This morning we read from Genesis 17. What's going on there? As I mentioned, Abram has just failed. He's gotten the promise of God at least twice. Okay, in chapter 12 and in chapter 15, and God keeps telling him, trust me, I will produce a child for you. Wait for me, I will produce a child for you. And, uh, you know, Abram has sinned in so many ways, uh, you know, by lying to protect Sarah and then ultimately listening to Sarah and taking her nursemaid to be a surrogate wife for himself, trying to fulfill the promise of God in his own power. And in Genesis 17, God says to him basically, remember, how does it start off? I am God Almighty. I don't need you to keep my promise. All you have to do, Abram, is trust me. And I will bring it to pass. So now, what I want you to do is to walk blamelessly before me. To be, to walk blamelessly, he needs instruction. Because who was Abram? 
when God found him. Remember, he didn't find God. God found him. He was a pagan. His family had been worshiping the moon god. And he was older when this happened. He was in his 70s. So he had a whole life of living a pagan life. A corrupt life. And we see the remnants of that following Genesis 12 and all in the way he resorts to worldly means to accomplish things instead of trusting in God. He still needed to be instructed. And we're like that. We still need to be instructed. Because we have so many things pushing in on us that try to, to encourage the sinfulness of our hearts. The ways and path, paths are used figuratively, referring to a way of life. God's way of life is foreign to us. Now, when we're immature, what we tend to do is focus on the rules. What can I do? What can't I do? Okay? As we mature, we begin to focus, I think, on being like God which is what the rules point us to, his character. Okay, But we, re- we, don't, we realize that if I'm a truthful person, I, I don't necessarily need to keep focusing on the rules that tell me about truthfulness. Okay, I need to become a truthful person. I need to become a loving person. Okay, this is not speaking against the law. I'm just saying that as we mature, we're focusing less on it because we're developing the character that fulfills the law. Okay? God uses the scriptures to instruct us about his steadfast love, his mercy, his faithfulness, his goodness. We see uh, you know, in 2 Timothy 3, that all of Scripture is intended to instruct us and to prepare the righteous person for good works. So he instructs us primarily through the Scriptures as we understand them by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is important as we see in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our minds need to be transformed. And it's not something that happens automatically at conversion. Ipso facto dunno. It's a process that will continue through the rest of your life. Okay, You'll continue to be renewed in your minds so that you are going to be transformed in how you live. John Stott, in his uh, old book that is now out of print, and I don't understand why men made new, says the secret of holiness is in the mind. It starts with how you think. Okay, In that, not fanciful thought, but in thinking God's thoughts after Him. Thinking the truth of God and aligning your life through the truth to the truth of God which illumines the path. And so our minds are increasingly renewed and we're transformed and affliction plays a big role in this 
Because it's during affliction that's what is up here starts to get here. That we start to apply it and say, oh, duh. (laughs) This is when I'm supposed to trust God. This is when I'm supposed to remember His goodness and faithfulness. This is when I'm supposed to remember when He warns me to flee from youthful pleasures. This is when He says, depending on the circumstance, the affliction that takes place in your heart and your life. And so we see that God's goal in salvation is not just the forgiveness of sin, but it's His glory by restoring His image in us. I always like to think of an old junker, old junk car that someone buys on the cheap and rebuilds, pulling the dents, removing the rust, replacing broken parts, putting a new paint job on it. Well, that's that's how I think of sanctification. God doing these things to restore it to its original glory. That's his goal. Perhaps you don't like cars, you don't identify with cars. Think about all those rehab shows on TV, on HGTV, you know? Fixing the house, getting rid of the termite problems, getting a good color on there, better windows, fixing the septic system, whatever. That's his goal. It's not just to pardon you, but to restore his image in you. Without this cry, without this movement, what we do is we practice a cheap form of grace where all we are is pardoned, we're not transformed. Where we can settle into victimhood because it's just about, you know, those people who do bad things out there against me. Or we can be non-recovering addicts just saying, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm always going to be a sinner. It doesn't matter. And God says, yes, it matters. I want to change you into something beautiful. Trust me. All right. This psalm portrays all of these as a whole. Okay? We're not called or not allowed to kind of pick and choose the parts of this psalm we like. I like the pardon, 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 and I don't like the instruct me stuff, you know? It's the same thing with the whole Bible. We don't pick and choose the parts we like and ignore the parts we don't. We're called to embrace them all, precisely because the gospel challenges everything that we take for granted. It challenges our strength, our perception of our wisdom, our perception of our ability, our perception of our goodness, and it presents us with Christ who is indeed truly strong, truly wise, truly able, truly good to make us in His image. When we try to eliminate a movement in this dance, what we do is we short-circuit our own growth and we actually remain in immaturity. So come, let's dance. As Jesus delivers and instructs us, making us more like him, don't settle for moralism. Don't settle for a therapeutic Jesus. Don't settle for victimhood. But rather, be alive in Christ. 
For that, Irenaeus says, is the glory of God, a man made fully alive in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we can hear this and say it's impossible. We can hear this and say it's impractical. We can hear this and say it's too hard. But Father, this is ultimately about your work and us, not about our work for you. It's us remembering that it all comes in Christ, but that we want the whole Christ, not bits and pieces of Jesus. So, Father, give us the whole Christ, your whole Son, and all that he's done for us, and all that he's promised to be for us. And help us to trust that person. Not the truncated Jesus we've created in our minds, but the one that we find in the Scriptures who threatens us, who loves us, who changes us. Just as he changed Peter and Saul, James, David, Abram, and Jacob, that you are in the people-changing business. So let us confess that we are people who need to be changed and look to you to do that very thing. We ask this in his name. Amen.